our study in the Epistle of Hebrews, we only study three verses today as we ready our hearts and minds for communion. They are familiar words of invitation to us today. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. The word of the Lord. Nowhere else in the Bible does an author spell out the functional roles Jesus serves than in the book of Hebrews. The Messiah is prophet, king, and priest. But all of these are first understood in human terms, aren't they? Prophets were appointed and meant to speak for God with clear truths for people to hear. Kings were appointed and given to rule with wisdom and authority. And the Lord raised up priests to serve because there had to be those who consistently called believers to holiness, who brought God's children back to him in the middle of everyday life. This section of Hebrews that we start today is an important bridge to where we have been and where we are going. We've been talking a lot about faith, we've been talking about the Word of God, and we've been talking about rebellion by looking at various role models. Now the writer turns our attention to the title of High Priest, which will be our focus for the next few weeks. For now, let us recall that priests were identified as servants in the tabernacle. It was the family of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, who were charged with the duties of interceding to God for the people by offering sacrifices, which the law required. Among the priests, one was selected as the chief or the high priest, and they were to enter the most holy place one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And during that time, they would place the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant. And it was by this daily and yearly sacrifice that the sins of the Lord's people were covered. It's hard for us to understand in reality how sacrifices worked in the Old Covenant, but it's important for us to try and grasp what we can. So we're going to be talking about that for the next few weeks, but for today, let's consider that there was a reason why God set up such an elaborate system for sins to be enabled to be forgiven. Humans are fallen, and so it was essential to our perfect and loving and holy Father, that there be a righteous way to deal with our imperfections, to deal with our brokenness, to deal with our actions that not only displeased him, but were also willful, willful rebellion against what he consistently told us to do. 
Also the things that were mistakes, things that we didn't necessarily mean to do, but did anyway, and then the ways that we neglected to do the things that we should have done. In the verses we studied last week with Jim, the writer reminds us how God's word is living and active. And we want to remember that in the context of what we're talking about today, that the Holy Spirit enlivens the scripture that we read and hear about. And then that word, that word cuts neatly through all of the clutter that we accumulate in our souls and helps us to access the truth that God wants us to know, the truth that we need to live by. See, before God, before the almighty creator of the universe, nothing is hidden. And in verse 13, right before this passage, it says, everyone is naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. We're all naked. We're all laid bare. God may have asked Adam and Eve where they were, but he already knew. God already knew the answer. He already saw what they had done. He already saw through the ways that they tried to cover themselves up. Covering themselves up didn't make a difference. They did that because they were ashamed. They were ashamed of their nakedness that they now saw. They saw what they had done. They were ashamed of what they did. They understood that they had done wrong by explicitly disobeying God. In the Hebrew language, the word for atonement is kippur, and it means to cover or purge or make reconciliation. You may recognize the word from Yom Kippur, the highest holy day of repentance in the Jewish faith. Atonement also means to coat with pitch. When Noah makes the ark, God uses the verb form of atonement, telling him to seal the ark with pitch. The ark was thus spared from the floodwaters of judgment with a solution God provided to those who believed. So those who believed could be spared as well. God has always provided a way for humans to be forgiven. He has always offered to cover our sins. Because the way that we try and cover our sins doesn't work. And so God provides a lasting and best way to cover our sins because we can't, we can't provide that. We can't escape on our own. Our theme for Hebrews is how Jesus is greater. And here we see in verse 14 how the Messiah is the great high priest. Jesus has passed through the heavens, the writer reminds us. And we think about how Jesus passed through the heavens to come down, to become human, to become one of us. And then how he passes through the heavens again when he ascends victorious over sin and death. And each year, the high priest would pass through the curtains, pass through the curtains to go to the most high holy place 
And the writer is saying Jesus surpasses that because he enters directly into the presence of God to intercede for us now in the heavens, to cleanse us with his blood. Because Jesus' death was once for all, we don't have to wait any period of time in order to be forgiven. It can happen at all hours of the day, no matter where we are. Jesus is also greater because he was tempted in every way that we are and yet did not sin. Before the priests entered the Holy of Holies, they made an offering for themselves so that they could be a clean vessel when they made intercession for the people. Yet Jesus is different. He had no sin, which is, able why, which is why he's able to be. Jesus is able to be the sacrifice. He doesn't offer a sacrifice of a different animal. He is the sacrifice. And while he may not have been tempted in the ways we are in modern life, he faces the same lure of sin that plagues all of us, that has plagued all of us for all of eternity. Hatred, lust, pride, dishonesty, greed. This is why he's sympathetic to us, because he knows. He knows our vulnerabilities. He knows what makes us fall. He knows and cares deeply for us in the middle of our struggles. He has experienced the evil that we face every day and knows how sin wounds, how sin harms us. So there are two actions today for us from this passage. One is to hold fast, to hold fast to the faith that we confess as true. The phrase hold fast is the same term that describes how the women held on to Jesus after the resurrection. In this image, we see how he was their hope. They couldn't believe he was alive. They couldn't believe that he had conquered death. They wanted to cling to the Savior who had returned to them, who had resurrected and never let him go. Because the curtain in the temple that separated God from the people was torn in two when Jesus died, we're exhorted to hold on tight to the Lord who saves us. Communion is a sacred moment when we examine what it is that we have been holding on to. What is it that you're holding on tightly to right now? Especially if it's something that God wants you to let go. What are we trying to control? What are we afraid of? Because whatever that is, it's taking his place. It's taking energy that we could be using to hold on to the Lord. When we lessen our grip on whatever it is that we want to hold tightly to on earth, we have more energy and space to hold on to God, to his love and presence which we need more than whatever it is that we're holding on to. The second action has to do with the powerful picture of the throne. To come before the throne of an earthly ruler, one has to be invited. Having an audience with a monarch, it's all about their greatness and the protocols surrounding them. What is okay to say and how it should be said, how one has to dress, the gifts one has to bring, how one is to stand or to bow, 
how nerve-wracking it, it must be to have an audience with an emir or a sultan or a queen, even for us independent Americans. For centuries, people have approached rulers to beg for clemency, to settle disputes, to plead for help in some way. A throne is a place where humans go when no one else in the realm has the capability to do what needs to be done. The picture of a throne is key here because it represents so many things in our world, doesn't it? Power, dominion, rulings, exclusive access, the problem with earthly leaders is that they look out for themselves or they look out for those closest who are lobbying them for their interests. Rulers can also be mean. If they're having a bad day, the person who comes to ask for help is not going to get a very favorable response. But look at how the writer describes throne here. The throne of Jesus is about grace and we should come with boldness to find what it is that we need from the Lord. He is the only one who can do something about how sin devastates us, about the sorrow that we live with, about the suffering of those around us. And we want to plead to the Lord. Jesus says, come, bring your prayers, ask the Lord, tell him what you need. This is a throne of grace where we talk to the Lord, where we give him all of our hopes and all of our fears and everything, everything that we want. We ask the Lord and seek him. The Savior promises, promises to listen, promises to be kind and fair, even when we come in our sin and our shame. So this morning we come, we come to ask for mercy. We come and ask for grace. We come knowing that we're not worthy. We're not worthy at all, but we're invited. We're invited to the throne of grace because God sees what we need. He sees our plight. He's already done everything that he can to relieve us of our burden. Jesus is sorrowful with us over the brokenness of our world. And so in this time of communion, in this time of remembering Jesus' death, I encourage you to take a moment. Just take a moment with the Lord and give him your burden. Give him your sin. Ask him for forgiveness right now. He already knows because nothing is hidden. And whatever we've been using to cover up our sin, to try and be at one again with God isn't working. So let's ask the Lord to cover us with his, with his grace. As a symbolic gesture of being willing to receive, I encourage you to open your hands before the throne. As you take communion, I encourage you to just pause for a second and just open your hands so that you can receive what it is that the Lord wants to give you. It might be different than what it is that you've come asking for. It might be the same, but the Lord has something uniquely as our sovereign 
as our leader, as our ruler, as our savior to give us. Ask Christ to take your burden, whatever it is that you're holding tightly onto, and tell the Lord that you're going to hold on to him instead. In this sacred moment, make that commitment, take that action to say that you are going to hold on to Christ instead. Allow him to cover your sin and brokenness with his mercy and grace. Let us approach the throne of God together today as we uh, read the liturgy together. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.